Well, good morning. Uh, my name's Tim. I'm one of your pastors here, and I'm really delighted to be able to um, get into the part of Matthew's gospel that we're up to, uh, working through his gospel to see what it is that he has to say about Jesus, the King who saves. And so we're going to be spending our time in Matthew chapter 23. Um, I wonder if you can open up your Bible to that. Um, we'll be reading through that and working through that text this morning. Um, words will be on the screen, but it helps to have your Bible in front of you. So let's read Matthew chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honour at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple? That was that has made the gold sacred. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. For you, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation." O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, would you come and present your Son in all his glory and beauty to us now as we open your word. Please prepare our hearts to receive by faith what you have to say to us this morning. Grow us to be like your Son, Jesus. May you fill us with love and joy and hope. For Jesus' sake, we pray this. Amen. The head of the Russian Orthodox Church is a man that's referred to as Patriarch Kirill. He bestows his spiritual guidance over, on over 100 million believers in Russia, more than 70% of the country's population. If the ABC article I read is anything to go by, he has, let's say, a mutually beneficial relationship with Vladimir Putin. Putin finances Patriarch Kirill, while Kirill ensures his followers respect and follow everything that Putin says. <clears throat> this photo was taken about 10 years ago. Uh, to manage his, pro his public profile, someone made an error in airbrushing out his watch. I wonder if you can see the telltale sign. Although they managed to remove the watch from his wrist fairly successfully, they forgot about the reflection of the watch in the surface of the table. They were caught out, weren't they? And you can understand why they would try to do that. It wouldn't land very favorably for the head of the church, the guy who's meant to bestow guidance on the people who believe in Jesus, a man who teaches about the corrupting effect of wealth and how there's more than, more than what wealth and treasures we find on this earth, but treasures in heaven, it would be unfavorable for a man like that to be seen wearing a watch that was later to be discovered, a $45,000 watch. And I reckon we gasp at that and react against that because there's something deeply disturbing about hypocrisy. As an outsider looking in, it's hard to get a completely accurate picture of what's going on in the Russian church. But it's, actually, it's really hard not to see 
that it's a, a religious institution riddled with hypocrisy. Especially when that's what you see in its leadership. They've lost touch with the substance of what they teach and what they're about. And when that happens to a religious institution, when the the substance is lost, what's left is nothing more than the pursuit of money, power, and status. All while those who are under their care are taken advantage of. The passage we've just read is about religious hypocrisy. And it's not just any religious hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy found in the very people of God. The very nation that God had gathered to himself. Those who he described as his precious possession. His treasured, beloved people. And in the passage we just read out, our passage for this morning, Jesus puts Israel, and especially its religious leaders, in the dock. Six times in the passage, uh, Jesus calls them hypocrites. It's in this passage that he gives his final verdict on the nation of Israel. And it's as he does that this morning, as God's word does that for us this morning, God wants us to see something. God wants us to see something about his son, Jesus. He wants us to see his goodness, his incorruptibility, his purity, especially as he goes after these religious hypocrites in his own people. So that's what the passage is going to do for us this morning. I reckon we get stuck into it. Jesus, at this stage in Matthew's Gospels, in the temple, having just gone toe-to-toe with the Pharisees and the scribes. That's the word used to describe Israel's religious leadership. And after leaving them speechless at the close of the last chapter, verse 1, Jesus turns to speak to his disciples, those who are gathered around him. And verse 2 to 7, Jesus describes the behavior of these religious leaders, Verse 2, they sit on the seat of Moses. It's a figurative way of talking about their authority as people who teach the scriptures of Moses. And verse 3, Jesus tells them, sure, listen to what they say, if you must. They're speaking from the scriptures, but don't do what they do. And what is it that they do? They preach, but they don't practice. They talk, but they don't walk. Verse 4, they lay heavy burdens on others but they don't even lift a finger to do anything themselves. And the summary verse is there in verse 5. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. And so they make their religious garments as lavish as possible with phylacteries and fringes. And it's the titles, the places of honour, and it's the status that they love, even if it means compromise. But to those who want to be part of his kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, Jesus says, verse 8, but not you. You have one teacher, one father, one instructor, and Jesus says, in my kingdom, 
you're all brothers and sisters. See, climbing the ladder of success, the hierarchy, the elevated significance, is out of place in Jesus' kingdom. Verse 11, the greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts themselves will be humbled. See, climbing the ladder inevitably leads to the fall. But whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. I think we all, on some level, understand the desire for status. It's why we can get the title of Prince Harry's new autobiography called Spare. I wonder if you've seen that book around uh, anywhere. It's fairly popular. It's one of the most popular books of the year. There's a well-known phrase around the royal family. One's the heir and one's the spare. The firstborn is the heir to uh, titles, power and fortune, while the secondborn is the spare. And we can kind of understand the sting of always living in the shadow of someone bestowed with royal status. And I think it's because there's actually a little Pharisee in each of us. A part of us that wants status. To be exalted, recognized, praised. Sure, we might not be wearing $45,000 status symbols. But I know that I can be tempted myself to maybe bend the truth if it means that people will see me in a particular way. I know I can be drawn to ways of serving others that are publicly praised rather than unnoticed. I think there's a little Pharisee in each of us. And the sin of our hearts is bent on exalting ourselves But Jesus reminds us here again that we ought to humble ourselves. So what does Jesus do? Jesus wants to teach us again here who we truly are as the people of God. We're brothers and sisters. You know the good thing about brothers and sisters? Status symbols don't work. Brothers and sisters know each other at their worst. They don't care what clothes you're wearing or the status symbol you're trying to display. Brothers and sisters see straight through them. Status symbols don't work among the people of God. You know what else is good about brothers and sisters? We love one another, we serve one another. No matter what that involves or who's watching, we love and serve one another. Do you know how Jesus measures greatness amongst the people of God? Well, he actually points to the lowest person on the social ladder. He points to the slave. He points to the slave and he says, that is greatness. The one who's busy about serving the interests of others. And by the way, what a relief. When we gather as the people of God, we don't need to impress. We don't need to wear a mask. 
don't need to dress a certain way or live a certain lifestyle. Because the people of God know that deep down, like brothers and sisters do, we're actually all pretty ordinary. And we all know that that is okay. The people of God is not like Israel's religious leaders. That's not what the people of God are. Jesus says, no way. We're brothers and sisters. And so after warning about being, uh, warning against being like the Pharisees and the scribes, Jesus moves to his concluding verdict on them. If it was ever unclear what Jesus thought of Israel's leaders, all here is made plain. Jesus, in this chapter we read, declares seven woes over Israel's leaders. An expression of displeasure and sorrow. Jesus is not pleased with them. And he shows us why. The way that this chapter is working is that the seven woes come in pairs. And then the final one comes in as a climactic close to his verdicts. The first two, Jesus calls them out for shutting the door to God's kingdom. Verse 13, you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Verse 14, those who do want to join kingdom are made twice as much a child of hell as they are. I wonder if sometimes we think that proclaiming the gospel was something only meant for New Testament Christians. Old Testament Christians needed to live a righteous life, but New Testament Christians are meant to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth, which is, there's some truth to that. But the Jewish Jewish scriptures paint a slightly different picture to that. See, when God first called Abraham the father of Israel, it was so he could bless the whole world. In light of God's great and powerful acts to save his people, Israel was meant to declare the greatness of God to the nations. The kingdom of heaven was never meant to be a bottleneck in Israel. God was always using Israel as a vehicle to save the whole world. But because of their hypocrisy and their deceit, verse 14, not even Israel's leaders entered the kingdom of heaven. This was a nation made to be a city on a hill, made to win people over by its goodness and purity, but it became a rubbish heap, producing a repulsive stench, and the door to the kingdom of heaven was shut to the world. The second two woes show how they distorted God's law. God gave his people the the law to bring life and light to their lives. Just listen to these words from Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. See, the law of the Lord was this beautiful gift from God to his people. It was a gift that was meant to bring life and wisdom into their life. But Jesus calls out Israel's, calls out Israel's leaders as blind fools. Meant to be teachers of God's law, they distorted it. And because they were doing that, the things that they were saying were actually contradicting what God intended. Verse 16 to 22, Jesus calls them out for twisting what God says about making promises, swearing. So they end up saying things that are upside down. 
They end up saying things like gold and gifts are greater, of greater worth than the temple. As though somehow gold and gifts could be better than the very presence of God amongst his people. Then in verse 23 to 24, they are insistent on the smallest details of the law while neglecting justice and mercy and faithfulness. Verse 24, he uses the image of a gnat and a camel. It took me a while to understand what he's actually meaning by that. Some helpful background, the gnat and the camel are both unclean animals in God's law. Uh, to eat them or to consume them in some way would be to make yourself ritually and religiously unclean. They were also the smallest and the biggest animal in Palestine at the time of the writing here. And so what he's saying here is to avoid becoming ritually unclean, they would strain out the little bug that was stuck in their cup of wine, being very careful not to eat this little tiny gnat. And then in the, very next in the very next breath, eating a whole camel, swallowing it whole. Can you see what Jesus is saying here? They meticulously work out the most minute details of the law. But they make themselves unclean by neglecting what is more important in the law. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And worse, they lead others in the same way. You blind fools, Jesus says. The next two woes escalate things further. Jesus uses the image of kitchen utensils and a grave to call out their hypocrisy. On, that, on the outside, they present well, like a clean dish or a well-dressed tomb, but on the inside, they are filled with filth and death. Jesus calls them out here as being riddled with sin. Verse 25, they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Verse 28, full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And then finally, Jesus declares the sharpest point of his verdict in the final woe. The leaders of God's people are outright hostile towards God. Sure, they decorate monuments to the prophets, verse 31. But they are, those, they are of those who have murdered the prophets. The prophets, of course, were God's messengers to his people, sent to call Israel back to follow the Lord. And it's recorded in Israel's history that they would kill the prophets. Jesus calls on Abel and Zechariah as example. As examples, both murdered for calling people to turn away from their wickedness. And in the way that the Old Testament scriptures were ordered for the Jewish people, different to the way it's ordered in a, in a modern Bible, it's recording the first and the last murders in the Bible. And so verse 32, they are filling up the measure of their fathers. bringing their wickedness, not just at the time that Jesus was saying this, but of the whole nation's hostility to God. They're bringing it to completion. 
And Jesus declares, this will come to an end. They murdered the messengers. And that tells you all you need to know about their attitude towards the one who sent them. They're hostile to God. And so Jesus calls them, verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Jesus' sentence on Israel is the judgment of God. Verse 36, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jesus declares an imminent judgment declared on Israel. Justice can be a bit of a strange thing sometimes. I was scrolling Facebook last, uh, last year sometime and a Nine News article came up in my feed that caught my attention. <clears throat> it was a guilty conviction placed on a 101-year-old male. It was a man who lived in Germany and he was convicted for his accessory to murder. So he had served as an, in a Nazi concentration camp during World War II. Which when, you, when I first thought about it, as I saw that article, was something that just seemed strange about that. These, happen, these crimes happened before most people in this room were born. Surely, just let this guy retire, die quietly, live out the short years he has left. But then when I paused to think about it more deeply, this man had been supporting a machine that murdered Millions of people. The devaluing of human life, brothers and sisters in humanity that he played a part in, is atrocious. And when we grasp that, justice makes sense, doesn't it? And so it is with Jesus here. The people of God, specifically those who are given the responsibility of leadership, are rightly deserving of justice. A nation that was called to be a light to the world, a way of knowing God, had become full of greed and hypocrisy from top to bottom. And so Jesus, rightly and directly, he declares his verdict on them, sentencing them to hell. Justice is a strong theme in the Bible. And it, it can actually be really confronting, especially if you're someone who's new to the Christian faith or haven't yet figured out how just the justice of God fits into the whole picture of the Bible. Jesus here has just condemned these people to hell, an eternal, just punishment for sin. And so we see the dilemma, don't we? Can a loving God cast people into an eternal punishment? Eternity is so permanent and hell is so horrific. How can that be just? How can, we, how can he call himself a loving God if he punishes people eternally? Well, the answer the Bible gives is actually to flip the question. 
And it asks this question, how could God be loving and not severely and eternally punish sin? How could God be loving and not severely punish sin? Think with me a moment. Think back to that 101-year-old male who who participated in the Nazi concentration camps. When you think about that, think about the cruelty and the wickedness and the evil involved in what he was participating in, isn't that just an horrific evil? Doesn't that make you angry? Doesn't it make you want to call out for justice, for someone to step in and take decisive action against it? And if you do feel those things, isn't it because you love people? See, God loves his world. He loves the people he has made. And so he is angry with the evil that exists in it. And he promises that one day he will do something about it. Those who are stuck in their wickedness and sin will come under the righteous judgment of a good God. Which, if you think about it, actually makes Jesus someone you can trust, doesn't it? He doesn't blur the lines. He doesn't try to sweep wickedness underneath the carpet as though it doesn't matter. No, Jesus is dead set against evil and he is good and powerful enough to do something about it. It's the final verses of our passage that display this really clearly, the, both the love and the justice of God together in one God, seen in his son Jesus. Verse 37, Jesus mourns that he see, what he sees as he looks over Jerusalem. See, he's the just judge who declares his verdict. This is the city that stones and kills those who God has sent to them. Yet Jesus earnestly, passionately, longingly, wants his people to return to him. He deeply wants his people to come to him, to gather like chicks under his wings. That's what Jesus wants. Jesus wants his people to have an intimate, loving, trusting relationship with his people. But they were not willing. And so, verse 38, your house referring to the temple that he's been teaching in, will be left desolate. That's the destiny of Israel, to be left desolate and abandoned by God, his presence removed from the temple, unless, unless they say to Jesus, verse 39, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, Israel, as bad as they were and as far from hope as they could be seen to be, for them there is still hope. Their only hope is if they embrace Jesus as the one sent from God. That's it. That's all the hope they have left. The first two verses of the next chapter tell us that Jesus left the temple. The divine son of God 
leaves the temple desolate. And then in verse 2, prophesies the destruction of the temple, not one stone left on top of another. It's in these verses that we get a picture of what Jesus is really like. On the one hand, he yearns. How deep in his heart is the longing to draw people to himself. I've heard people tell stories about how hens will fiercely protect their little ones. And so, of course, I went straight to YouTube to figure out if it's true or not. And I saw a video of a snake. I think it was a cobra because it had its head right up, elevated, ready to attack the hen and its chicks. And I was surprised. The hen ran at the snake, wings out wide, trying to fend it off to protect its chicks. It was quite striking, I thought. The hen was actually willing to take the bite of the snake to protect its chicks. And it's quite fitting that Jesus uses that image of how he wants to relate to his people. Because that's exactly what we see in Jesus, isn't it? So it's it's not just that Jesus has a willingness and a yearning and a longing for his people. But a few chapters later, in Matthew's Gospel... Jesus hangs on a cross and takes the bite of sin and evil. Jesus puts himself in a position where he takes the hit for his people. See, his longing for his people is not just sentimental and niceness. Now, Jesus actually does everything necessary to gather people back to himself in his death and his resurrection. Can you see that? Can you see how on the one hand, Jesus is the king that yearns for his people and wants to save them? And yet, on the other hand, he is a fierce judge. Jesus is ready to kick the door down on wickedness and evil. He's one who will not be mocked, who will not stand silently in the face of wickedness and sin. Jesus is a fierce and righteous judge. If you're not a Christian gathering with us this morning, we're really pleased you're here with us this morning. We love helping people to get to know Jesus and figure out things like this about Jesus, which can be a little bit Uh, stretching to get your head around. This morning you've seen that Jesus is both the judge who stands against sin and evil, but who wants to beckon you in and call you to trust in him. See, the image of a hen and its chicks is a really helpful image if you're trying to figure out what it means to become a Christian. It means to come and trust in him, to find rest under his wings. See, Jesus defeats the powers of sin and evil and death, and the invitation is open to the whole world. Those who want to draw near to him can come and trust in him. So we see there a beautiful picture of what it it means to become a Christian. And if you are a Christian, we're given here a wonderful picture of what it means to continue as a follower of Jesus. See, a life with Jesus is marked with security and joy 
finding rest in your soul under the wings of your Saviour, delighting in a trusting relationship with the Lord of the universe. That's what being a Christian is about. That's what walking with Jesus is like. And this passage makes us, helps us to see exactly what following Jesus is not. It's not about religious performance. It's not just about holding the right traditional doctrines as important as they are, but it's about finding your place under the wings of Jesus. Knowing that you're loved and protected by the King who saves. He is just. He is good and he yearns for his people to draw near to him. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for showing us this morning what your son Jesus is really like. His firm and his good justice, but also his deep love and delight in his people. We want to know him more and more. And so please pour, please pour out your spirit amongst us that our eyes might be opened to see him more clearly. Help us as we live out our life together as brothers and sisters. Help us not to be concerned with status, but to be humble as a servant to one another. For those among us who aren't Christians, please would you grant them a clear picture of who Jesus is and a clear understanding of what it means to trust in him. Father, help them to see the goodness and love of your son, Jesus. Help them to see the death of Jesus as the measure of his love for them. We ask this for your son's sake.